Welcome to Tashma. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, and this is the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. One of the classic questions about the book of Esther is, why isn't God mentioned? What does this mean for the book and for us? This is the core question Rabbi Shai Held explores in Where is God in the Book of Esther? Let's listen. I guess you could say one of the most sort of vexed and controversial questions about the theology of Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. And just a sort of full personal disclosure, one of the reasons I wanted to teach this is because I'm totally stuck on it. And I thought it would be, since it's all about me, I thought I could get some help. No, I mean, actually, on some level, I find this question incredibly interesting, incredibly elusive. And I'm in the process of teaching a summer-long seminar on the book of Esther, as I'll explain in a minute. And I will say that I am now even less certain about this question than when I started teaching this course, okay? That question is, is God to be found in the book of Esther? And if so, where? Okay? The problem, right, which means that this question can never be answered in a definitive way, is that God is never explicitly mentioned in the Megillah, and therefore we are always going to have no choice but to be arguing about and from Silence, which means there will be no definitive arguments. You cannot make a definitive argument about an absence or an ostensible absence, right? You can only wrestle with what it means and what it is there perhaps to suggest. Um, and in light of this, I want to just offer us a kind of caution going into this, which is if we want to try and understand the text on its own terms, we are going to have to be especially careful not to simply assume that our theological assumptions are the text's theological assumptions, right? It is very easy to do that in general. It is especially easy to do that with the book of Esther. And you find that even among modern academic Bible scholars, if you read conservative evangelical scholars as a rule, they all say, what do you mean? It's a story about divine providence, obviously. And then you find more skeptical, politically-minded Bible scholars who are like, what do you mean? I mean, why? Because it's in the Bible. You think it's about God. It doesn't mention God because it's a secular story about ancient Jewish nationalism, right? And then you have the postmodernly inclined ones who say, no, it's actually a story about ambiguity, right? Now, I am now going to tell you something that is only going to reveal something about me. I am personally extremely inclined to that last reading, right? I don't know if it's right, but right. Okay. So, it's important, I think, to try and suspend your assumption about what's in this text. By the way, those of you who went to yeshiva day, how many of you went to a yeshiva day school when they were younger? Only one of you. Amazing. So two of you. So here's the thing. Here's the thing about yeshiva day school. If you learned the book of Esther in yeshiva day school, you learned, obviously, it's a story about God, right? Because that's the cultural context that you're operating in, okay? So... I'm asking everyone to try and sort of suspend that so we can try to encounter this text as if for the first time, which is doubly hard to do with a text that is so familiar. Um, what I hope we'll try to do together in the short time that we have is to listen closely to pieces of this text and to struggle with its ambiguity um, and elusiveness. I, I, my hope is that we can do this in three parts. I'm not quite sure we're going to be able to do the third part, but at least it's my hope. I want to first look at... <laughs> The verses in this book that tend to be appealed to as the keys to the book as a whole, 
the book that people who are convinced this is a story about God point to and say, no, it's right there, are actually, interestingly, the same verses that people who think this book is decisively not about God appeal to to prove their point. And I want to sort of systematically walk through some of those places. Some of them will be familiar, and some of them, I suspect, even those of you who are familiar with this text, will look at it and say, wait, why is this a key point to the God question? And we'll sort of try to walk that through, walk through that systematically. Then, I'd like to spend a little bit of time thinking about all of the ways, and there are many ways, and every time I read this book, I discover there are more ways in which the book of Esther is essentially a set of allusions to the Joseph story. And to ask the question, what is the theological point of the book of Esther being in some ways about the story of Joseph? Um, then if there's time, which there probably will not be, I wanted to show you, but at this part you can actually sort of do on your own and see what you make of them if we don't get to it. Um, I brought almost at random four contemporary Bible scholars and their four radically different readings of what's going on in all these verses. And I thought it would be fun to sort of, after we've looked at the texts that they've looked at, see whether we buy their arguments. It is, I mean, at the risk of saying something almost pedantic and ridiculous, there's a reason why I'm saving the 20th century people for last, because I want us to have the same tools they have before we evaluate them, right? As opposed to having their reading then skew or shape how we encounter the verses. Okay? Any questions about that little introduction? Uh, in that case, I want to say one last thing to kind of bring us into the text, which is this question is not just, I think, a curiosity. I suspect this question is also important in our attempts to understand the rabbinic theological project, the theological project of the Talmud. Because in many ways, I hope I can get to sort of talk like this briefly at the end, in many ways, I think that Megillat Esther was the animating theological text for an awful lot of rabbinic theology. And that is in part precisely because if there is God in this story, it is not God who is present in the same way as in the book of Exodus. If you're living, you know, in the year 250 CE and you have to choose between Sefer Shemot, right, the book of Exodus, and Megillat Esther, the book of Esther, and decide which one of those you can theologically relate to most from your own experience, I have a feeling you're mostly going to choose Esther, as did the sages. And I hope we can sort of end by talking about that at least briefly. Okay. <laughs> so first, I want to just begin with sort of the pre-introduction, Esther 2.7, right? Which introduces Esther's name, okay? It describes Mordechai as Hadassah, that is Esther's foster father. Okay? Very familiar. The reason I'm mentioning this is, on an obvious level, this is where the ambiguity of this book begins. On an obvious level, the name Esther is a good Persian name related to the god Ishtar, right? Just as the name Mordechai is related to the god Marduk. From that, you should not conclude necessarily that these were worshippers of Persian gods. These are names that were widespread in Persian culture. Any more than you should assume that if you meet somebody Irish who has a name that mentions God in it, that that means that they are, you know, some deeply devout person. These names were part of the cultural coin. So Esther is a Persian name. However, as the sages of the Talmud quickly discern, Esther also contains the root in Hebrew for the word meaning hiddenness. And 
going back a very long way, all the way into the present tense among interpreters of the Bible, both traditional and academic, people have wondered whether this name is in part here to give you the clue that the meaning of this book is to be searched for in what is not explicitly stated, in the hidden. Okay? So, I, I, I leave that to you, by the way. Others say, really? Talking about stacking the deck. Give me a Persian name. You search for a midrash based on a Hebrew root for a Persian word, and then you say you found God in there. Well, that is, let's say, less than totally convincing. Okay? Now, I'm saying this only because, you'll see, we'll do this one after the other after the other. Okay? Source one. Um, I'm trying to decide how to do this exactly. Um, Can I have a volunteer to read the verses in Hebrew, and I will mercilessly and rudely interrupt you? It's a very appealing invitation, isn't it? Right, of course, Rossi raises his hand. He wants in. Go ahead. Great. <laughs> Great. Um, part one, hints of God, question mark. Esther three. You know what? Here, you know what, Rossi, I'm going to do? I'm going to interrupt you even before you start and say these verses, these two verses, I don't even particularly want to read out loud. I just want to mention something that may be striking and maybe you've never noticed before in reading Miguel Adestere. The way the Megillah sets it out the destruction of the Jews is intended to take place on Erev Pesach. Okay? Now, you can say if you choose, okay, that happens to fall out on Erev Pesach, you know? My Aunt Zelda also, you know, went to the store on Erev Pesach. It doesn't mean anything, right? That one, I would say, is highly unlikely, right? It seems to me at least, again, just going to offer this possibility, it seems to me at least that at very least, the Megillah is introducing the question, is this a story about redemption? And if so, redemption by whom or what? Right? The Jews are fasting on the first day of Pesach in this story. I mean, that is highly significant and evocative. So when the sages start playing with Esther as a replacement for Shemot, they're in some ways reading the book very carefully. So that first verse here is really just about explaining um, on the date... The, the, the date of what's supposed to unfold. Now you can read bet, number B, letter B, and we can do that, okay? So we're, I'm going to be on page two now. I'm, I'm doing this, I'm sorry, in a short form because this is like a four-hour class that I have an hour and 15 minutes for. Okay, so in every province or satrap, satrapy, I don't know exactly Medina how to translate it, where the king's word appeared, this is the announcement of the um, imminent murder of the Jews, right? It was a time of great mourning, and then the important phrase, vitzom uvechi umispeid, a fast day, a, a time of fasting, of weeping, and of wailing in the sense of mourning. Sakva eifer, these are the, the clothes of, of mourning, is laid out for all. <laughs> Okay, so people who insist that the book of Esther is a story about God all say the following thing on this verse. Well, I mean, everywhere else in Tanakh is obviously about asking God to intervene. That's why people fast in Tanakh. And so obviously this needs to be read in light of all those cases which flesh out the meaning of fasting, weeping, and mourning. 
Now, what is the obvious response to this? If you're skeptical, it's a God is nowhere to be found. Yes, if every other case mentions God and this one doesn't, you're free to decide that this one explicitly talks about God, or maybe you should say, well, wait a minute. Somebody actually chose to mention these terms that are normally associated with God and actively chose not to do so. Why are you importing here, right? Those of you who are interested in the world of rabbinics by this almost weird Zerah Shavah, right? Okay, well, every other time it's about God. This must be a God time. This time must be about God too. That doesn't seem to work, right? Why not say the opposite? Every other time is about God. How striking that this one is not about God, right? Anybody want to make a passionate case for why one of the other of those arguments is right? Yeah. Not necessarily the one or the other is right, but it's interesting, right? I mean, we have the same problem with the rabbinic project where they keep telling us if there's a long drought, then certain periods of time you pray. But God's not necessarily answering, and if it doesn't happen, you have to pray again, and then at some point you just give up under the rabbinic rules. Um, it's the same thing, right? Clearly, it would seem pretty clear that they're praying to God, but whether God's there to answer or not, that's not clear from the text. So I, I, I want to I push you here, and I'm going to do it in the most obnoxious way possible. You forgive me. Those of you, who, those of you who know me are not surprised. Those of you who don't are nervous. But... Um, <laughs> One time I handed in a chapter of my dissertation to my advisor, who was extremely offended by the use of the word clearly. And he said, right, clearly is what you say when you don't have a good argument, right? So it would seem clear to whom? How would it seem clear? Maybe one is, maybe one is here fasting and mourning as a, an emotional catharsis trying to express one's sheer grief and terror. Why would it not say? Look at Shmuel Bet, right? Right below, Sam, to Samuel, right? This is something we're going to talk about in a couple days. David says, right? When the child was still alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, maybe God will have pity on me. That would not seem to be about God. That is about God. Why do you assume that when it doesn't say anything like that, that it would seem to be about God? I'm not saying you can't respond to that. I'm just trying to sort of suggest that there's a good argument in both directions here. Please, just remind me your first name again. Janet. Janet, thank you. Um, so you don't buy it, but that's okay. If for some reason this text is not supposed to be about God explicitly, the best way to put God in implicitly would be to use language that's normally associated with God. So it would be like a hint. It, it would go intentionally to remind you without using. Speech. Good. So I, 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 you, I think that is exactly the right argument for that approach. I would just want to give you the other, a, a different possibility for a minute. If I over and over and over again, walk right up to the door marked God and each time take a look back up and walk away. Am I hinting at God or am I actually directing you to notice the fact that I've walked away? That's the question, right? Because the author of the Megillah does this again and again and again. Why? We don't know. We're going we're gonna to try to develop our different... I'm not going to sell you on an approach to this. I really just want to open this up and have you think about it. But the author of the Megillah arguably approaches the door, stands there, and walks away and does it again and again and again. And by the way, you know, I, I was comforted, <laughs> apropos of this, I was comforted in reading a passing comment by Michael Fox, who's written three or four 
commentaries on Esther over the course of his career, in which he says, you know, as for the God question, I've changed my mind on this, you know, over and over and over again about what is the theological message of this book. So if he's confused, I feel better about my confusion. And I'm inviting you into that confusion because I think it really is fruitful confusion. Razi. It seems to me that this verse, and actually maybe throughout the whole Megillah, looks at the Jews from the outside. It's someone who is, it's almost like someone who is not Jewish folks, about the Jews. And if you take this look from the outside, and don't bring the Jewish conviction about God into it. You are looking at what the Jews do. Don't necessarily go into the question, how much do they behave? I hear that. I'm not sure that I accept the premise of that, that it's actually someone standing outside. I think it's actually more likely intended to be someone standing somewhat later. Looking back, I'm not sure they're outside of the community. They're rather outside of the time of the story, right? Um, here's what I am uncertain about around these kind of readings. I mean, the readings that I find least persuasive are the ones that say, this is a totally secular story. And one of the reasons I find those readings unpersuasive is it feels highly anachronistic to me. I don't see any evidence of stories like that being in circulation. Um, so what you're saying is intriguing? Not sure. Not sure. Let's, let's see if you still want to say that as we go. Heard that. Um, yeah, last comment for now, and then we're going to keep going. Um, wait. Jolene. Give me a minute. Okay, Jolene. <laughs> Could it be a story about look what look what happens when God is absent? Look at human beings, PH. I mean, could it be? Well, that's the joy of the ambiguity of the story. Yes, it could be. Um, I, the to my mind, the more convincing ancient version of that would be: look at what happens when people don't rely exclusively on God. That feels to me, at least, to be a more plausibly ancient interpretation of this story than look at what happens when God is absent, which, I mean, it's not that biblical texts don't have times when they imagine God is absent, but I guess I personally, tweet this as you will, find the reading whereby the issue of whether or not God is active becomes secondary to the issue of how are the Jews in exile supposed to be responsible for their own fate? more convincing. It's a twist on what you just said. But but again, I'm, I'm, I genuinely am not trying to sell you this. Look Now, okay, let's now look at C. C is, I would say, in many ways, the linchpin for many people of the God question in this story, okay? Um, David, do you mind reading this, okay? So, sorry, context, right? Um, Esther says, right, everybody knows, this is, by the way, a really subtle, stinging rebuke of Mordecai, everybody knows that if you go into the king uncalled, you're killed. I'm not going to go, right? Selfish reading of Esther? I'm not going to risk my life. Unselfish reading of Esther? I don't know how we're going to survive this, but my getting myself killed is not the best idea, right? That's actually the much more subtle reading of Esther rebuked from Mordecai. What, are you crazy? You want me to just go into the king? So I die, and then what's going to happen to the Jews? Right? Okay. So now this is Mordecai's response. Okay. 
Okay, right? So Mordechai instructs the messenger to respond to Esther saying, do not imagine, I'm going to just do this a little colloquially, do not think for one second that you are going to survive by hiding inside the house of the king, you alone among the Jews. Because if you remain silent in this moment, salvation and relief will come to the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house shall perish. And who knows, right? Perhaps you have risen to the kingship. Um, You've risen to royalty for just such a moment as this one. Okay, so first, Mordechai's comment, right? If you remain silent, this next phrase, Revach v'hatzala yamod la'yudi mimakom acher, has, I would say, elicited among kind of starkly theistic, divine providence-oriented readings of this story, great glee, right? And that is because of one of two reasons, one of which is linguistically totally unconvincing, and then I'll tell you what I really think, and one of which I think is actually kind of interesting. One is that there is a long history of understanding makom acher, another place, as an allusion to the divine name hamakom. A, the divine name hamakom most likely does not exist yet during the time when this book is written, and also makom, a place is not the same thing as Hamakom, the place, which is God's name because in the Talmud, God is the place of the world, whatever that means exactly. Okay. In other words, the notion that Makom Acher is a direct reference with an almost proper name to God is totally implausible, so it seems to me. That's, that's one thing I would like to actually argue strongly. However, that does not solve. Many readers who want to say, this is not a story about God, say, well... Obviously, it's not just a me. Hamakom. Okay, fine, that's great. But what is this other place that Mordechai feels com- confident will lead to salvation of the Jews? Is that not plausibly read as, well, the other place is God? Right? To which skeptical readers say, okay, maybe yes, maybe no. Mordechai is a pretty well connected person who is an officer of the royal court. He's got plenty of other tricks up his sleeve. Salvation will come from a different place. Why are you assuming that has to be God? Why? Because you started out reading the Megillah, assuming that salvation will come from God. So you think Makomacher means God? Why? Anybody have a definitive answer to this? (laughs) No, right? Um, By the way, this is actually kind of, it's very rare. I'm about to offend Richard terribly. But, you know, a friend of mine who not long ago finished his doctorate in, in, in biblical studies, when he ended his dissertation, his advisor said to him, here's the secret. There's not so much new to say about Tanakh, right? Because <laughs> it's like, you know, been thousands of years and a lot of people, by the way, I totally disagree with that. But anyway, but, but, but some of us have to plead for our livelihood. But, but the point is, um, recently... Someone made the following extremely intriguing argument that I have not seen anywhere in the history of Jewish or Christian interpretation, which is that actually this verse has always been mispunctuated and that it should be read as follows. Verse 14, I'll do it in Hebrew first. 
רווח והצלה יעמוד ליהודים ממקום אחר? What, you think there's some place else that's going to save us? It's up to you. You're going to hide, and then what happens to the rest of us? You think there's some other place it's going to come from? That is really interesting. And if that's the correct reading, it would be, Lord, there's one in every group. In every group, there's an Arthur Elstein who drives you crazy. No, I'm kidding. No, I think you're right. However, as you know from this post like from the study of biblical grammar, rules like this apply in every instance except in the ones that they don't. <laughs> no, I'm not mashing that plan into it. Yes, you're right. You're right. I said rules like this apply in every instance except in those rare cases when they don't, when you find a way to say that a letter is elided. Right? Now, I, like you, am skeptical. Meaning, the problem with saying, oh, the intended letter is elided is then I can make any verse say anything. Right? In other words, right, just though you don't have the Hebrew that Arthur suggested is, if this were really a question, you would probably have something like, question mark, exclamation point. Right? You wouldn't have the better explanation. Well, he does that my point. And you don't have the hey that turns it into a question. Okay? So grammatically, it's weak. Theologically, it's really interesting. Okay? Um, okay. Now, by the way, just so we're on these verses, I will tell you that many people have many questions about what does Ve'atuvetavich Tovedu, you and your father's house will be destroyed. After all, from just reading the story, you think her father's house consists only of Mordechai. So who is it that he's threatening her is going to die in the end here? It's very strange, right? And who does he think will be responsible for that? Is this an allusion to Haman? who will stop at nothing to kill all the Jews? Is this an allusion to God, who will punish her for not rising to the occasion? Is this an allusion to the Jews, who will be angry at the Jewish queen who abandoned them? All unclear. Okay? This verse, many people, totally is about God. God will save the people. You don't want to be a part of it. Fine, you'll go down, and God will save us. Many other people, okay, if you like special pleading as an argument, this is very convincing. Okay? Okay. Yes, sir. Come on, skeptic. Clearly, this is about God. <laughs> oh, nice. But well, I come back to the point that I was trying to make in the other point, which is... Indubitably. Indubitably. <laughs> is so, Mordecai is hinting at this. The other verse where they're, where they're fasting is this. But I think from the author's perspective, if you want to say God's not in the story, then what the author is saying is a little bit more along the lines of you'll walk up to the door and nothing happens. They are trying to sort of bring God into this and say, okay, if we fast, maybe something good will happen. You know, mima koma khair, somehow we'll be saved. And yet there's nothing in the story that ever makes it clear that God actually does intervene. So the story, I think, is less about what Mordechai and the people were thinking and more about, well, how does this really work in a world where we don't see God actually doing it? Good. Okay. So, so that is sort of close to what I was sort of suggesting as reading number three. Not that it is clearly a case that God is involved in the story, but it, it seems likely that the narrator wants you to stop and ask the question about God. That I am actually very sympathetic to, meaning, again, I, again, I, I, my own sense of this story, the more times I read it, is that you are supposed to f sort of be lured into the narrator's flirtation 
with mentioning God, but then also notice his refusal to do so. So in other words, it seems to me that this book wants to at least raise a question about theology. What its answer is, I mean, I thought Richard, you were going to say something else, which is like, look, you have so many allusions to God. They all add up to God. You know, you hint, 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 hint. At a certain point, you get the hint, right? But you said something, I think, more subtle than that, which is at a certain point, you can't help but ask the question that the hints bring up. Personally, I find that to be a better reading, but after all, you know, we're all guilty probably of, to some extent, finding convincing the readings that most reflect us, right? This is, you know, I was once, um, I don't know, I was talking to someone who is um, an intellectual historian who studies Jonathan Edwards. And he said, you know, the problem with many Jonathan Edwards biographies is that he begins to sound like a late 20th century Ivy League New Englander. And anytime you write an intellectual biography of someone and they begin to sound like they live among you, you should have some skepticism about whether you're reading them or reading yourself, right? This is something, I mean, I, you know, for those of you who like this, I've been to give you recent books in Jewish studies that I think are guilty of this, right? Where, you know, recent books on the Rambam, where the Rambam is a kind of postmodernist, right? The Rambam is all about his own epistemological doubt about what he can know might be true, but it also is very convenient for a 20th century person to say this. Or a fascinating argument, this may be relevant to something some of you have studied. Emmanuel Etkis, a great historian of Hasidut, um, <laughs> made the following argument in a seminar I was in of his many years ago. He said, you know, you read 20th century presentations of the circle of the Magid of Medzrich, the second generation of Hasidut, and they basically sound like existentialists who sort of read Heidegger in 1930 and then sort of like told little stories about existentialism. He said, I'd just like to say one thing. Every one of those people walked around with a piece of paper in their pocket on which was written the four-letter name of, name of God and was convinced that they could heal people from illness by using that piece of paper. Okay? They are not living in the 20th century. Stop making them your contemporaries. They're not. Right? So I, I say this only because I am offering my own skepticism about the fact that I actually think that this Megillah is about how the question of God may be unanswerable. I am deeply skeptical of my own conviction about that. Because that's basically what I think. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means that I should have some questions about it. That's like, by the way, a basic rule of doing intellectual history, right? People who live 500 years ago are not you. It doesn't mean you're wrong, but you should be skeptical. Okay, so that, that's why I'm... Okay, let me just go one more if I could, because otherwise we will not get to two, let alone three. So quickly, number four, right? The beginning of Esther chapter six... Ahashverosh can't sleep, right? This occasions among more traditionally minded readers the claim, wait a minute, how many coincidences in this story have to happen in order for you to realize that a coincidence is not a coincidence but divine providence, okay? To which more skeptical readers say each one of those coincidences can be explained just fine. Like this one. Esther has just invited Ahasuerus and Haman to two private banquets, just the three of us, right? Three of them are just going to hang out. And then, by the way, I didn't put this in, or I should have, which he actually says to Ahasuerus for a second invitation, I want you and Haman to come to the Mishteh Asher Asiti Lo, to the meal that I have made for him. And not, as you would expect, Asher Asiti Lahem, which I have made for them, 
Would you imagine Afashmerosh takes swallow deeply and says, for who? Why are you so obsessed with having private meals with me and this guy, Haman? And maybe, say these readers, Afashmerosh can't sleep because he doesn't know what Esther's up to and he doesn't know why she keeps talking about Haman as if he's like part of their marriage. And if anything, Esther here is really shrewdly controlling Afashverosh's anxiety and making him skeptical of Haman. So that by the time Haman shows up, Afashverosh would like nothing more than to humiliate him. Coincidence? Not a coincidence at all. It's a machination by a Machiavellian genius named Esther. <laughs> okay? Number five. Okay? Great. Before you leave four. I'm... Yes, Rabbi Confer. <coughs> the other Rabbi Confer. Um, the elder Rabbi Confer. Cantor, who uh, on that verse takes Hamelech and does it to the, uh, the tradition is to do it like it's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Right. Belath. And yeah. Hamelech means? God. God. Yeah. Uh, so all I would say about this is, it is extremely unlikely that that is pshat. <laughs> that, that is that the, that, the, that the straightforward meaning is that the king who can't sleep. Yes, it, Esther Rabbah says, shnat um, malkoshel olam, something like that, right? It is the sleep of the king of the world. Um, I think that as often with Chazal, with the sages, they're saying something quite interesting there, which is they're suggesting that it's God who's keeping Achashverosh up. I think that's kind of what they mean to imply, but I don't see that as shot. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's a hard sell. Any uh, of that is the word melech. No, I'm not saying clearly. I have no need for it to be clearly. I'm just saying probably. <laughs> the word melech appears 192 times, whereas God appears zero times. So is that kind of the subtle, like, is Esther only Persian? Or is there knocking, you know, coming up to the door of Hamelet? Why does, you know, 192 Hamelas appear and the so, he, so here's the skeptical response, right? Right? It is a story very much about royal power and its manipulations. The reason it appears many times is because that's what the story is about. Like, if you weren't so firm, would you have counted 192? You know what I'm saying? Like, words, yeah, that's, so, yes. This is it. So, okay, great. The goal tonight is to see how many people we can alienate in one class. No, no, I, no, but no, I, I think, no, I, I think, it, I think I'm not, but again, right, if you want to talk about God and you're going to use a term that might be about God 192 times and never say God, well, then you're actually standing outside the door, peeking in, saying hi, and then walking away, right? Okay, so now, the amazing moment, which for some reason people don't notice as much, but it's actually kind of such a striking moment, right? Haman goes home after the humiliation of having to, to lead Mordechai around, and he tells um, he tells Zeresh, his wife, and all of his supporters everything that happened to him, and they say, right? And his his advisors and his wife Zeresh tell him, if Mordechai, right, before whom you have started to fall, 
is of Jewish stock, lo tuchalo. You will not be able to defeat him, kinafolti poldefanav, because you will fall before him. Which, by the way, is a magnificent foreshadowing of the way the narrator makes fun of him, because in a few verses he'll be falling in front of Esther trying to beg for his life. But what do they mean by this? Oh, oh, you're starting to lose to a Jew. If you start to lose to a Jew, it's over. What, is he reading the protocols of the elders of Zion? Like what? What is he suggesting here? Right? So many commentators suggest, if I may quote my dear friend Richard Dine, clearly this is an allusion to God. God providentially will protect the Jews, and ultimately save them from those who seek to do them harm. In fact, many people suggest, I should have included this, that the narrator is flirting with the idea that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy made in Numbers 24, which says that an, Ag an Agagite king will fall before an Israelite king. And they say, oh, it's starting to happen. Because as you know, with biblical narrative, even non-Jews know Tanakh by heart. Right? That was an attempt at humor. My third unsuccessful one of the evening. But okay, I'll, I'll just keep going until I succeed once. But the point is, the, so in other words, many people have read this as, oh, okay, I see. God is already involved. God finishes what God starts. Other non-theological readings of this? Anybody? Anybody want to plead? Wait, actually, Rod, let me see if anybody else wants to weigh in on the on the skeptical side. Yeah, please, Carol. Um, could it not be interpreted as just being, well, the Jews are always going to offend you. They're always going to demand and the anticipated recognition that the Jewish people have this uh, success in their lives. So, I mean, we can we can itself have the magnitude of God, but. Um, I mean, it's, it's not specifically calling on God, but just a recognition that, oh, he's Jewish, so it's over for you. Yes, so some reading like that is possible. The, 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 right? That sort of some, it's some kind of, I don't know what you would say, empirical or semi-empirical view of the resilience of the Jews. That strikes me, I have to say, as a weird argument to make about a people in exile and clearly somewhat vulnerable at this moment. Oh, if you start losing to the Jews, you're in big trouble. By the way, in many ways, I think this book is one of the many lenses that you can apply to this book is that this is the first moment when the Jews go from being an exilic community to a diaspora community. That is a moment when the Jews discover the possibility of political power in diaspora. Um, I always find it odd when certain often right-leaning, but not always, Zionists read this story as a kind of proto-Zionist story because it's about Jews taking power, except the whole point of the story is that it's about Jews grabbing the, the levers of power in diaspora, right? It's a very much an exilic story. Or, or for, for, again, a there's a difference between exile and diaspora. Clear. Exile is a sort of a sense of alienation. We're not where we want to be. We're not where we should be. Diasp diaspora is a more neutral form of talking, right? It is a form of refusing a kind of um, exilic mentality in diaspora. This reminds me of something that Yitz Greenberg um, yeah. fascinatingly says, you know, in the wake of, in the, wake of the Shoah, he sort of argues, you know, that, that, that the, the meaning of Zionism after World War II was that, as he puts it, Galut Judaism was over even in Galut. 
right? Because, I mean, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm happy to do that with anyone who wants to another time. I'm just talking about empirically. The notion of APAC, right, is an unimaginable thing any time in the history of the Jews until the refusal of Galut Judaism in Galut. The refusal of Galut, of, of exilic Judaism, even in exile, right? The notion of we will seize the levers of power. You can, you can think APAC is the greatest thing that ever happened. You can think APAC is the worst thing that ever happened. doesn't matter for here. The point is sort of the shift of consciousness and therefore of a kind of politics that becomes available to you. And arguably, this story is in part about something like that. The Jews who no longer are going to sort of just be passive, but they're actually going to hold on to levers of power even in, 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 in exile. Yeah, let's take two comments. Yeah. You, you asked, what would a skeptical meaning of this be? Well, uh, Haman has declared war of the Jews. There's this, there's this battle that's coming, and the king now has favored Mordecai over Haman. So now, if we are friend to say, if the king is on the side of a Jew over you, that means you're a you're a Lucas war. Yeah, it's on your it's against you now. Yes, but yes, but the strange formulation of if he's a Jew suggests more than because Ahasuerus likes this guy. It seems to think seems something like if he's a Jew, there's something about them. They have that special je ne sais quoi. Of a theological perspective. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, no, no. You know why I just stopped? I literally just have to call you Ariel. I'm sorry. I could call. I've never done that to you before. I'm sorry, Ariel. It's her daughter. I apologize. That's why I started laughing. I apologize. Okay. Well, first of all, about the anti-Semitic king, it is that clear we alluded to, and it's always Haman, Ben, So here, just to make our head spin for a minute. No Greek manuscript of Megillat Esther ever mentions that Haman is an Agagi. And many Greek manuscripts of Megillat Esther explicitly talk about God. The end of this verse in the Septuagint is, for God is with him. Huh. Right? So some modern Bible scholars say, yes, well, the Masoretic text simply erase this. And other people say, no. Some Greek text added it. And we say, we're back to our epistemological confusion about how we should figure this out, right? We don't, we don't really know, right? But it's if you start looking at the Greek translations, you realize that there are there are versions of this story that are explicitly and highly theological, and there are versions of this story that are totally not interested in this connection to Amalek, which is so central to the Jewish liturgical experience of Purim, right? And that's actually exclusive to the best of my knowledge, I think, to the Masoretic version in the story. Masoretic text meaning the, the Hebrew version that we have received as Jews, as canonical. Okay? Should the other point of what to me? It's really kind of fascinating, yeah. Um, what Zeresh says here reminds me of Raphael. It uh, despise. And the, everyone's heard of you. Uh -huh. uh, and, and she is, what, a, a foreign woman, and the Jews are on the way to conquer the land. She thinks... Everybody knows that you guys are going to win. Now, I don't know whether she refers specifically. Yeah, so those of you who were here last year, we learned the Rathav story um, at great length together, in which I tried to suggest that she's actually making fun of them when she says that. She has these two never-do-well spies lying under a bed of, of flax, and she says, everyone has heard of you, and we're terrified. 
and that she's in some ways showing them up for buffoons in that story. But I think that you are actually saying, and amazingly, she doesn't say that everyone is afraid of God. She says everyone is afraid of you, which I think is a way of making fun of them. You guys are real tough guys, right? Literally, Joshua sends them to the land to go and spy. They go to the land. And as soon as they get there, they go to a brothel because where else do you find accommodations, right? And anyway, okay, we'll go to there another, we'll go to another. Now, hold on a minute. Um, I want to, because you said that, I'm just going to sort of preempt this for a minute and say, look at the next one, okay? As the story comes to an end, the Megillah tells us that the Jews are all celebrating and many people who are not Jews are mitiahadim, a word we do not know how to translate. This is kind of a mess. Does it mean become Jewish? Does it mean befriend the Jews, follow the Jews? No one's quite sure what miyadim originally means here. Um, but why? Because the fear of the Jews has fallen on them. Those who see God in this story immediately say, ding, 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 this is of course an allusion to Shirat Hayam, Az Yashir, where it says about the nations, Tipol Alehem Ematavafachat, all of the nations will be terribly afraid of God. And this is obviously an allusion to that, and it means that they were afraid because of God. To which those who do not buy this say, yeah, but Exodus 15 talks about the fear of God, and this doesn't. He's talking about the fear of the Jews. So, because you think the story is about God, you say, oh, fear, obviously it's about God. Well, it's only obvious if you decide that in advance. It's not obvious at all. Maybe they're afraid of the Jews because they understand now that Malachi is going to control the empire. I have to stare too. Not convincing. Or not, not a case of clearly. Okay? And then one more. Okay? Zion. This, I think, is even more intriguing, okay? Number seven, or a G, sorry. It says that the rest of the Jews living in the king's provinces, I'm on page four of this packet now. Um, they fought for their lives, and v'noach me'oivehem, and, I don't know, achieved respite of some kind from their enemies, to which... Those who find God in this story say always, you know. The only time in Tanakh, as a rule, that Noah is used is when God's promised to the Israelites again and again that they will have menuchat from their enemies. To which, by now predictably and boringly, people say, yes. And in all those cases, it says that God gave them menuchat. And in this case, it doesn't. So stop with your assumption that by the way, a very rabbinic assumption in certain ways, methodologically, right? If it says it in every other case, it probably means that here too, which they say, that's just not convincing. If it says it in every other case, and it doesn't say it here, right? Reach the opposite conclusion. Yes, who just had their hand up on the side? Two. Yeah. What about the word Yehudi here? I mean, would it would be understood more as a geographical reference? I mean, if... if... To the best of our knowledge... The word Yehudi in this book, this is the first book we have where Yehudi has become an ethnic designation, and it is because the tribe of Judah is the only tribe that is considered at this moment still more or less viable quad tribe. And so even non-Judahite, either mem even non-members of the tribe, after all, Mordechai is from Shevet Binyamin, right, is called a Yehudi because that's the dominant community. 
Did that answer your question in any yes, way? But I'm just okay. wondering if, if the term Yehudi here would not necessarily have a religious notion, but it have a geographical or an ethnic, even an ethnic notion. So when you say Jew in that sense, you're thinking of another nationality, but not of a not of a of a, of a God directed that. So there's a certain kind of reading. Um, I think it's pretty rare these days, but there was a time, certainly among academics. I'm not sure, I haven't, I don't know enough about the history of Christian interpretation to know whether this is there. Richard, feel free to weigh in if you have a thought on this. But there was a time when there were academics who argued, like in the 1950s, I've seen a couple articles argue, well, this is really, I, I alluded to it before, like a story about a sort of a secular story of how a group learns to protect itself. And it's really a story about kind of an ethnic nationalist kind of perspective. Um, and my sense is that most people respond to that by saying, historically, that's just very anachronistic. Now, I don't, I'm sort of out of my depth there on the sort of the, you know, the, the ancient history piece of sort of what's anachronistic or not. I don't know. I mean, there are people who have read this. I have not seen anyone argue this in the last few decades, that it's a kind of like a secular... Nationalism is not quite the right word, but I'm looking for some version of it, right? Ethnic self-preservation story or something like that. I, I think that, that interpretation is largely out of favor. Does that seem right to you? Please. Tell me your first name again. Zach. Zach, thank you. It reminds me of actually the argument that Spinoza makes in the Theological Political Treatise. But of course, he would maybe not ascribe that to the authors of the, right. of the text, but, but have it like as, a, as a revisionary reading. Yeah, well, for sure, for sure you can, from a certain kind of secular or atheological perspective, one can say that despite himself, the author revealed how possible it is to tell a historical story without God, which is a kind of novum in Tanakh, right? You can certainly argue that. I'm trying, at least in this moment, to dig under that to ask what is the message of this story as it understands itself. That's a different, but, but for sure you can do that, right? I mean, you can call this totally bracketing the authorial intent, a proto-secular story, right? A kind of, you, you can decide to read it that way. Yeah. Please. Well, just what strikes me so kind of ironic about that is Spinoza also reconnecting the reading scripture on its own terms in that work. But clearly, you know, a lot of his assumptions are right. sort of in, seemingly interpolated. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Right, exactly. I mean, right. I'm actually saying that the secular reading in this case is not about letting the story speak for itself, but actually quite the opposite. Yeah. At least that, that's my intuition about this, at least. Um, yes, Toby. I don't understand. I can envision the motive of, uh, of the narrator wanting you to put God in this way. And I can imagine the motive of a narrator wanting to come up to the door and walk away to specifically take God out of this I can't understand the motive. One who wants it to be purposefully ambiguous, just to make you say, "I can't answer that question." Let's go lower this. So I'll tell you, uh, for whatever it's worth, I will tell you what Michael Fox's. I believe the argument, the last argument he makes about this. I think this is where he ended up on this story. Although he's still alive, so he may, you know, obviously may change his mind. I don't know. But if I'm not mistaken. Okay, I really want to, that's a big caveat, because I'm not sure I'm right about this. I'll say this. One of the arguments he made in a now classic article called The Religion of the Book of Esther, he argues, fascinatingly, that the, na the, the author's problem is that he can't figure out at this moment in Jewish history 
whether he thinks that God is providentially, you know, involved in the story of the Jews, but differently, or whether on some level it's time to realize that God is not running the story at all anymore. And so he writes a story in which he invites you into his own confusion about what's happening. Now that again, I'll tell you, I find that very beautiful, but I'm also sort of wondering about how, is that just too contemporary in certain ways? I'm not sure, right? But it's a, that's, that's the answer. The answer is why would, it, would the author be deliberately ambiguous? Because he himself finds history ambiguous. That's not crazy. Remember, you know, Jews are living at a time when the, the foundational stories appear more and more mythological and less and less related to their everyday reality. And that only becomes more extreme, by the way, as time progresses. I mean, I once heard, um, it's the second time I've mentioned him in this context, but I once heard Gitz Greenberg say, right, in, a, in an interfaith context, something I thought was extremely moving, sort of obvious in a way, but extremely moving. He said, you know, if you want to understand the predicament of the Jews after the destruction of the temple, so obviously we're talking about later here, so you have to understand, it's not just that they're saying, wait a minute, maybe God has taken a massive step back from human history. It's that they're saying, wait a minute, maybe God has taken a massive step back from history at precisely the moment when there are other people who are saying, oh, really, he was just here walking around a few years ago. Maybe God has taken a huge step back from you. And that that actually um, creates the sort of like, how do you say that? What my mother would have called an etzim bagaro, right? It creates a kind of like bone in it. They can't swallow because, wait a minute right? That's the Christian polemic against them. It's not that God has stepped back from the world. It's that God has rejected you. So now that's obviously not here, but I'm saying that that trajectory of being sort of increasingly confused, wait a minute, the story of Exodus is paradigmatic. In many ways, it's the story that I think makes the whole Bar Kokhba revolt possible. What do you mean? If you have a horrible tyrant ruling over you, God is against that. That is the fundamental story about the universe that we tell. And so they rebel and they get slaughtered. What is God's rule in history exactly? Now, that, again, that's later. But what I'm suggesting is you could argue that the beginnings of that confusion are present here. And in some ways, it's again what makes the book of Esther so contemporary for many of us. Right? Because it's not... I mean, you know, when I was a little kid in yeshiva, so there was a period where like, my teachers thought it was clearly in the Six-Day War, God won. <laughs> right? And then literally, like decades past, I was like, well, how clearly? What do you mean? And how do you actually, here's like a major question in, in, in philosophy in this day and age. What does double causality look like anyway? Meaning people make their own choices, but you're saying at another level that does not interfere with the first level, there's something else going on that's an additional layer of causality. Flesh that out for me. Make that clear how that works. This is like a massive question in, in, in the science and theology dialogue. In questions about, you know, what would it mean to talk about divine agency that doesn't rob human beings? This is really hard stuff. This is hard existentially for the Jews. Oh my God, where are you? And it's hard philosophically to figure out how to even talk like this. One of the things many Bible scholars are fortunate is they don't know anything about philosophy, so they don't even realize that what they're saying. No, I don't mean that, I don't mean that obnoxiously. I don't mean that obnoxiously at all. I mean, they don't actually, they're not necessarily interested in the question of, how does that work? Right? What are you actually saying when you say that really God is God is working through Mordechai? Mordechai is totally free, right? This is a big problem philosophically. Okay, I'm going to just push forward. I apologize. I know there's more comments. 
Actually, I want to push forward to this. I want to take two comments right now. After this section, somebody made a case to me that, oh, come on, the cumulative evidence here is that this is the story that I've got. Anyway, make the case. Oh, what a bunch of secular Jews. Come on, make the case. Jeffrey Stern, I know you see God everywhere all the time. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> the, the narrator is speaking when he says, me or they are later. Those his, without being an atomistic and projecting our philosophy. Good, good, good. How do you know that at this moment, this isn't up to you? But he's, he's not pointing the direction to God. He's really talking to Esther. Oh, you're doing the opposite of what I asked you to do. <laughs> but but he, he's... This is... This is downright weaselly, Jeffrey. which is a time. Okay, good. So I didn't even develop that, but that's also true. When he says to her, Miodea, who knows what for this moment you have got to do? Almost every instance of Miodea is an allusion to what God might do. Okay, here we go again with the ping pong ball, right? Well, who's with God? Well, almost every case is not every case, right? You tricked me right there. <laughs> okay, anybody want to do it? Talk. I'm not sure if this does it. But it just seems to me at the end of the day, the third argument where it's about the ambiguity essentially becomes the first explanation, right? Because it's about a different way of relating to God. It's okay. a, it's, yes. Let me just, just to finish the Yeah, go, 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 go. Words, Great. The idea is... Hey, as a as a Jew in a in a different world, we suddenly like I slash we suddenly have to pr protect and defend ourselves in a different way. We have a different relationship with God. There's something different that we have to do here. So, and clearly, there's more of a of an obvious uh, activist role to to play, as you alluded to earlier. Great. Doesn't okay. that loop back and essentially become? That changes the nature of how to <coughs> So I think there are two versions of number three. Okay? We'll call them 3A and 3B for a minute. Like right? 3A is what you said, which is that no, it's ambiguous in that it forces you to reimagine the ways in which God is there. 3B, which I think is Michael Fox's argument, no, it's ambiguous in the sense that it's actually ambiguous. Not that it, not that the ambiguity is how does God work in the world? But rather, is God there at all? Those are th those are two versions of three. Okay. Yeah. I'll, yeah. So that's one for now, and then I'm going to push forward. My other thought is that if it's not about God, then why does it mortify God? What if I doesn't believe in something else? Okay. Why does it mortify? What's the entire motive of the story? Right? Mortify does not submit. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I hope this doesn't shock anybody's universe. There is absolutely nothing in Tanakh that suggests that it is prohibited to bow to another person. There is simply no instance in Tanakh in which that is the case. None. And in fact, there are many cases in Tanakh where people bow down to other people, not least think of Avraham bowing down to the people in the land. I mean, this, that argument is um, a very, um, I would say, kind of a late rabbinic twist that what's really going on there is a kind of theological argument. Early Midrashim actually go even wilder on this and assume this is what's called like an embellishment of the story, but they're after something that Haman had a little picture of an idol on his shirt. And so because, because they knew that actually it's totally false to say that Jews can't bow down to people. That happens in the whole the time. So why couldn't he bow down to Haman? It's still an idol. Haman had a little, little, little patch 
right? But, but I'm not trying to make yeah, fun of it. I think, I think it's actually very <laughs> interesting, actually, what they're trying. Again, you know, it's very it's very easy for monoreers to read certain kind of totally fancy or vinic ideas as sort of ridiculous. And it's actually really important to sort of figure out what are they trying to get at? And I think they're getting at this, which is they want to be about what you're saying, but they know that historically, they need to add something to the story to make it about that. More often um, these days, people argue that Mordechai's refusal to bow to Haman has something to do with, at least in the Masoretic version, an enduring animosity between Yehuda and Amalek. I'm not going to bow down to an Amalekite. You should be dead. Right? You should be dead. No, buy it or not. Or if you, by the way, you want a Machiavellian reading, this I am not selling, but maybe Mordechai suspects that Haman was in on the Big Tan Vateresh plot. And he somehow managed to get himself to be the second in command through his own machinations. And Mordechai is terrified of him and wants to stop him. Don't know. I feel like that's a little in- a little that relies on a lot of silence. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I wanna, Rosie and Richard, I apologize. I know you guys have both been, um, I don't wanna say patient because I haven't given you exactly a choice, but you've been tolerant, <laughs> okay? Just because it's now 8.45. I wanna just show you something. I'm gonna literally blow through this for a minute. Yosef and Esther, some things that are obvious and some things that are not, linguistic and conceptual, okay? So number one, right? Esther is described tellingly in, in Esther chapter 2 as Yifat Toar V'tovat Mar'eh and Yosef is described in the story as Vayi Yosef Yifat Toar V'yifat Mar'eh They're both gorgeous and the story needs you to know that as it starts. Number two, okay? Esther manages to win the affections of everyone she meets. Vatisa Chesed Levanav and same idea that Esther with Hegai we're talking about and Yosef with Potiphar. Now, see, in the next page, I literally didn't give you any verses, but it leads directly from this. And this blew my mind when I finally, I finally saw this. Both stories begin in a two-stage process where Yosef and Esther both win the favor of a courtier and then right afterward the favor of a king. Hegai is to Achashverosh, Efotifar is to Para. Same story, right? They're both gorgeous and charismatic. Dalid, right? Um, I didn't have a verse for this because it's from silence, but Mordechai saves the king, does a great thing, which is immediately forgotten. Yosef does a great thing that no one else can do. He explains the dream. And it is immediately forgotten. Number five, right? There's another thing there that the the, the the not the cupbearer, but the butcher is impaled on a stick. Yes, also true. Um, um. Now the, the the refusal to bow down, which you can buy this one linguistically or not. yom vayom. When when the other courtiers of the king, said to Mordechai each day, but he would not listen to him. What does it say about Yosef and Eshet Potiphar? 
these seem to me to be allusions to each other. When you have a, almost a full, like full on phrase like this. Um, okay. Number six. Okay. The king takes off his king, his king, his ring and gives it to Haman is a direct allusion to Genesis 41. Paro takes off his ring and gives it to Yosef. Okay. Um, and then to anticipate, he also will dress him up all nice, just as Haman will do with Mordechai. Sorry, as Achashverosh will do with Mordechai. Um, number seven, okay? In an amazing description of the sheer crudeness of Haman and Achashverosh, they issue a decree of genocide, and then they sit down for lunch, which is a direct allusion to Joseph's brothers, who cast him into a pit, leave him for dead, and then say... Who brought the sandwiches, right? So, and then number eight, um, um, when Esther is afraid of what might happen to her, when she goes sees Haman, she says, "Bechasher avaditi avaditi," and as I perish, if I am to perish, I shall perish. Uh, Yaakov, and he's about to send Binyamin to Mitzrayim, says, "Right, right, kasher." Right? Same, same linguistic construction. Number nine. Um, the king has troubled sleep. He has the stories brought to him, and things turn for Yosef. The king can't sleep. He, right? You, you follow what I just said, right? I lost my, my ability to say that in English. The king, the king can't sleep. Yo, um, es, uh, Mordechai is remembered, and the story turns. Okay? Um, and again, it's about the troubled sleep of the king that fundamentally reorients the story. Number 10, um, which I already kind of alluded to, when Ahasuerus dresses Mordechai, or orders Mordechai to be dressed in royal garments, parallel to and an even more expansive version of what happens to Yosef. I'm only going to do two more, and then I'm going to stop and figure out what on earth are we talking about here. Number 11, right? I mean, you see, like, here's the thing. One of these, you could say coincidence. Two of these, coincidence. Three of these, you're pushing it. Fifteen of these, come on, right? Um, number 11, um, wait, would I lose my place here? Number 11, wait, what is the... Ah, yes, the, 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 the insistent language in Esther about Nimkarnu Aniva Ami, we have been sold, right? Is, of course, Yosef and the repeated language of Vayim Kiru at Yosef, etc., the selling of Yosef, um, okay? Um, number 12... Um, Mordechai leaves. Actually, this is actually another version of the same thing. This is when um, um, Yosef and Yosef and Mordechai both now being again dressed in this royal garb. Okay, what is all this about? Yeah, it's like one other example. Uh, I think there's a bunch more, but go for it. When Esther's being prepared to be brought to the king. The description is based on embalming of Yaakov and Yosef's words. Yeah, good. Thank you. More? 
what is all this about? Let's not, we, we probably, I could, we probably could do five more, six, five, six more examples. What, what do you think is going on here? Why are these stories riffing on each other? Rossi. And then that he alludes to the, he makes an allusion to the fact that this is again a situation of Jews being a minority in a different country, perceived as, as aliens, sometimes they are very much like, sometimes they are able, same thing. Good, okay, but can I push you? Good. I think you're right about that. Jews in the minority culture, flirting with power, remaining vulnerable, flirting with embracing power, and in a time in which God's role in all this is extremely hard to figure out. Right? Think about the difference between the Yosef story and the Avraham story. God is very different. Right? The Yosef story is quite elusive in that way. Okay, I want to take one step further on that in a minute, but first, other comments? There are a couple of hands up. Yeah, please. We've told me you didn't comment. Susan. Susan, thank you. Their full passing is known too. Okay, and what do you think that means? Do you think... Well, you mentioned the hiddenness at the beginning. Um, nobody knows that they're Jewish, so there's question as to whether they can stay that way, and ultimately, it, it seems they can. But they have to step forward. Good. I mean, yeah, the whole nother lens that you could take to this story is around the question of passing and quote-unquote, to use an anachronistic term, secularity. You know, in contrast to, say, in the book of Daniel and later Jewish wisdom literature, there's no attempt in the Masoretic version of this text at all to insert religious ritual, which may be another way, another reason why, in the case of the fasting and crying out, the narrator flirts with mentioning God, but then doesn't. There's no, you know, it's amazing. Here, here is a case where if you read the rabbinic commentary, you realize how far the pshat is from anything they're concerned with, right? Esther was, you know, in, in the rabbinic division, Esther was mortified. How can I sleep with a non-Jew? What did she eat in the castle? I mean, she was Shogar Katros, right? Now, there's something extremely moving about that, but it actually shows you in a fascinating way how far those concerns were from this, from the author of this text. The author of this text is in some ways, I think, telling, may very well be telling a theological story, but he's telling a theological story about, here's another anachronistic term, semi-assimilated Jews. By the way, one commentator, one modern commentator, is just the following thing. I don't know if this is a great reading, but it's really interesting. He says, you know, why does the narrator tell you it is a story of Hadassah, he Esther, Hebrew name, which is Esther, and then never mention the Hebrew name again? Because he basically wants to tell you that she's basically Greek. I mean, he's basically Persian, right? He doesn't use a Jewish, who uses their Jewish name? This is why, by the way, if any of you ever been to like a Baal Chuba Yeshiva, you have these sort of Ludviki Russian Yeshiva where it'd be like, now, what's your real name? Want you hear that experience, anybody? Everybody in the shop table? I mean, Alvin, that's not a Jewish name. What's a Jewish name? Right? No, I'm serious. That, how's that? Because there's something very profound about that. Right? Not about Alvin. By the way, I only took on people well, no, I, I, I know and who I know will give it back to me in one way or another. Probably when I least expect it. But the point is this. I mean, that... What was my point, Alan? No, the, uh, the, the, the idea that, that, you know, that the needs here might matter and might be a, a well, she has the Jewish name. When does she use it? Never. What is it about her? Not at all. Is that in itself an interesting hit? Mordecai, 
I mean, Mordechai doesn't even have a Jewish name. Mordechai is just Chris. <laughs> right? He has a totally mainstream, I'm not being funny, he has a mainstream Persian name. He's Chris Cohen. I mean, so anyway. Okay. No. Wait, you, you left the one possible character in Joseph's story? Joseph. I left out probably many. Joseph's came. God worked it for good. Good. Okay, so that's my next point. So here, here I would like, I'm going to offer you a suggestion that you are more than free to scoff at. But it is a suggestion I hypothesize I'd like to offer about the relationship between Yosef and Esther. I totally accept Razi's point, right, about the sort of the Jew who passes and the minority culture, and the minority culture that flirts with power. But the difference between the Yosef story and the Esther story is that in the Yosef story, the story itself, as it were, resolves the dilemma by saying, no, God is here. The character in the story steps forward and says, God has been behind all this. You thought you sent me here, but God was behind it, and it was lamichiyat, it was to save lives. The Esther story is one degree more ambiguous and one degree more elusive. That is, you, the reader, are left to do the work that Yosef himself does in the Yosef story. Oh, is God involved in the salvation of the Jews? Well, Yosef said yes, and Mordechai said nothing. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that that resolves the dilemma about what exactly is the theological statement. What I think that that is probably what's going on here. This is like one step further in the sort of stepping back of God. Because in the time of this story, there is no one there to say definitively God is in this story. So you can read, it goes back to 3 a.m. to leave, but you can read saying, well, look, right? The, I, I think in many ways Chazal fought this, the sages fought this. The trick is, are you discerning enough to see God's presence where it's not manifest? Right? That may be the intention of the crowd of the story, the simple meaning of the story. Or, and I don't know, it may be that the meaning of the story is what Michael Fox says. Yosef thought it was clear. We don't know. Right? I'm putting these out there. I, I actually, personally, I'm a little inclined to 3A rather than 3B on this point. But I, I, I have no illusions of making a, a, a convincing case of that. It just strikes me that it's kind of the progression of theology. And by the way, one of the things you, 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 you may know and with this, we'll, we'll, we'll end. And I, I invite you, by the way, to read Source 3. I tried to bring you four modern academics. They're all very different. I did not bring them because of the four most influential scholarly readings of Esther. A couple of these are actually sort of obscure. I brought them because I think they're interesting to rub up against each other and see, in light of what we've learned tonight, what you think sort of covers, this, tells the story best, right? But one of the things that's interesting is that after the Holocaust... After the Shoah, the Esther story is a site of some Jewish theological controversy, right? Because, well, wait a minute. If Esther is about how God is there, but in really subtle ways to guarantee the salvation, and we saw God's presence there, well then, the Shoah is the ultimate radicalization, but God is not there at all. And here, I'm not trying to sell you a particular theology of the Holocaust, Lord knows, and just trying to say that for obvious reasons, right, in a moment where there's no salvation, 
people tell us that, well, Esther represents one kind of radicalization, but what happens now? But the book of Esther drove Emil Fackenheim kind of crazy. Wait, wait. the story about how the Jews get saved. Okay, so what's the story about how the Jews don't get saved? Where's God in that story? And much of philosophical theology in some ways is about that. Yet Spielberg's writings are all about that in different ways, right? Eliezer Berkowitz, all kinds of, are all wrestling with on some level. So what's the transition from Esther to Auschwitz? And by the way, can we now read Esther differently in light of the experience of the Jews in the 20th century where we thought it was really God and now we realize it wasn't God at all. It was just, what, luck, coincidence, Jewish self, someone said earlier, you know, like Jews taking responsibility for their own fate. I, I don't know. But there again, I, I think, you know, there I would want to just at least kind of remind you, make a distinction between what might be the theology of the book and what might be the relationship to the book that a contemporary Jew might have in a time where even many people who believe strongly in a personal God have a less robust theory of divine providence. I'm guessing that if I went around this room and even, you know, asked people who would say, I have a pretty traditional notion of God, a God who is, you know, a conscious being with a will, right? And I said, well, what is, how does God work in the world in managing the events of human history. Yeah, I think I did a lot of stammering and hesitancy, right? And that's the dilemma that comes from being, you know, in the 21st century, trying to read a book that perhaps is arguing, no, the Providence is there if you just look kind of more deeply under the surface. I want to just end with this, which is that in one of the most striking passages in rabbinic literature, um, that I think is almost staggering, and it's chutzpah that is familiar to some of you, I'm sure, um, where the Talmud asks, right, really kind of, it's hard to imagine this, right, the famous story that some of you are familiar with, this image of God holds the mountain over the people's head, right, and says, if you accept it, the Torah, great, and if not, this is your burial place, occasions what I think is one of the, really one of the most staggering moments in all of Jewish theology, right, but Talmud then asks, im kein moda'a if that is the case, we have a wonderful argument against the Torah. And Rashi, Rashi says, well, that's called a contract under duress. And everybody knows the contract under duress is not binding in any way. This is the most amazing moment in, in, in rabbinic theology, right? Meaning the Sinai covenant is fundamentally doesn't honor the freedom of humans because God says, I'll punish you. And the rabbinic answer there that takes the breath away is, that's okay because they renewed the covenant at Torah. Talking about they renewed the covenant at Purim. He moved it to He moved the They renewed what they had already accepted at Sinai. I think that what that statement is about is the rabbi saying, in some interesting way, the covenant is more real in our time than in theirs, because in our time we can genuinely choose to worship God, and we we worship God because we want to worship God, not because we're afraid we might get smitten. Smited? Smitten? Smitten. Now, smotes. Smoten means we would fall in love, right? You like that smote. Do you guys, did you ever see that Farsight cartoon, one of the great Farsight cartoons? There's a picture of a little kid at a computer, and he's pressing a button that says smite, and the caption is, God is a small child. Anyway, the point is, the point is, I think so, you know, so rabbinic theology lives right in this ambiguous space. Oh, the disappearance of God is horrific. But it also makes a maturation of the covenant possible. Because a world in which I'm not afraid of, you know, God obliterating me is a world in which I can worship God as a genuine agent with some freedom. 
Okay. Thank you very much. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode with additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.